Good morning. My name is Emily, and I'm reading from John chapter 5, verse 31 to 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in, dwell in you, for if you do not believe the one sorry, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is the end of the reading. Good morning again. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Flick, and um, I thought that it would be good to start today with a little game called Two Truths and a Lie, and if you don't know this game, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to tell you three things about myself, or make three claims about myself, Two of them will be true and one of them will be a lie and you need to guess which one the lie is. It doesn't matter if you don't know me, you're still allowed to guess and we'll do a little poll afterwards to see what you think. So, my first claim is that I can do the splits. Second, I have four nieces or nephews. And third, I had dreadlocks for seven years. So those claims are, I can do the splits, I have four nieces or nephews and I had dreadlocks for seven years. So I'm going to do a poll, I'll go through them, and you raise your hand to the one that you think is the lie. So put your hand up if you think it's a lie that I can do the splits. Yep, righto. Put your hands down. Put your hands up if you think it's a lie that I have four nieces or nephews. A few of you, yep. And put your hands down. And put your hand up if you think it's a lie that I had dreadlocks for seven years. All right, yep. That was a resounding kind of consensus on the first one, but that's all right. Um, now, I want you to think about why you think that might be the lie, whichever one you chose. Um, is it because you've never seen me in those situations or perhaps you've never heard me speak about it? Uh, perhaps you just look at me and you have your doubts. Or you might just be guessing and that's fine. But what I want you to be thinking about is what is the information that we use to make judgments about claims that are made? Every day, in lots of different situations, we are seeking proofs to form judgments about how we should respond to certain situations. And sometimes they're scientific proofs, sometimes they're anecdotal, as in somebody says something or you, you seek um, proof in what people say. Sometimes it's inductive or deductive, so we like piece together bits of information. And so we're doing this in order to determine what's happening around us and how we should respond. And this is from the insignificant things like 
what do you think about those claims I just made about myself, it has no impact on your life, to the very important such as, do I have time to cross the road before that car comes? Or, um, like today's passage, I'm suggesting that actually what is arguably the most important truth of all, which is Jesus' claim, is Jesus actually God in human form? Because that is ultimately what Jesus is claiming about himself. And uh, if you were here last week, then you did get a little bit of a sneak preview. We, we had the first sort of instalment that Beck went through, and we heard those claims about Jesus being able to give life to people um, and to raise the dead. So it is this claim that Jesus makes that uh, Christianity hangs on the truth of this, that Jesus is God in flesh. Because if Jesus said um, that he was that person and he is who he said he is, then Jesus is the one who can give us life and save us from spiritual and physical death. And in the passage that we've just heard read today, uh, it also says that if we accept those truths, then we have the opportunity for joy Uh, We have the opportunity to receive new life in various ways and also that we receive glory or honour before God. Um, And so we're going to have a look at that a little bit more. But it also says in this passage that uh, if we choose to reject those claims that Jesus made, uh, then we probably might get some respect from people around us in the world, but we also then stand accused before God. That is, if we choose not to believe what Jesus said, our own choice, our own belief puts us in opposition to God. And so for that reason, it is arguably the most important uh, decision that we ever have to make, whether Jesus is who he said he was. But the good thing is that it is reasonable, and we learn from this passage today, it is reasonable to want proofs. these claims and in fact what we see in this passage is Jesus offering proof to the people around him who are questioning whether he is who he claims to be and so whether you already believe that Jesus is who he said he is or whether you're still trying to work it out this first lesson today we can learn is that faith in Jesus is not blind we have proofs available to us and it's okay to question whether the evidence stacks up and I don't know about you but I like reason I'm a reason I don't know if I can say I'm a reasonable person, but I like logic. And so I think it's really important that you can actually test things to find out whether they hold up or not. And so I really like this passage for this reason. The thing is, these proofs aren't represented by a probability of greater than 95%. So if you are extremely scientifically minded, that's not the sort of proofs that are being offered. But like with history or anthropology or philosophy or a lot of everyday situations or a lot of relationships, there are still judgments that we can form based on evidence that give us proof of what Jesus said. And so we're going to have a look at the three proofs that are offered in this passage. Um, But because I know a lot of us are quite convinced about who Jesus is, the other stuff that we learn from this passage uh, is also uh, encouraging or challenging. So there are things that we can see that will help us think about how we then live in light of who Jesus is. So the first testimony or proof that Jesus offers to us is a human witness. And Jesus says in the passage that he offers this not because he needs a human witness, but because he recognises that that will help to convince people about who he is and that that will then help to save him. And we see the use of human witnesses in courts, in our TV shows and movies that we watch often. We see witnesses up on the stand. 
And we recognise that um, when they speak, they're giving evidence about an incident that's happened and what they say counts as proof of that event, doesn't it? And for some reason, even if there's DNA or other kind of video evidence, there's something significant about a human testifying to something that's happened. And I think within the church, we also see that when somebody gives their own personal testimony about how Jesus is acting in their life, there is something really encouraging in that. There's something very powerful about that. And so for some reason, we as humans respond to other people and to what they say is true. And so Jesus in the passage points to John the Baptist as a human witness to the proof of his claims. And just as on a court stand, somebody that is considered an authority in their field is um, given kind of more weight when they speak, as in what they say holds a bit more, more weight. In the same way, we should think about John the Baptist as this kind of authoritative witness to Jesus because he was a prophet. He was considered to be a prophet and therefore somebody that God was speaking through. And so when he says something, it was heard with a different kind of power or significance. And we also can see that in the passage we've read, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, you know this guy, you know John the Baptist, and you know what he said, and you even rejoiced in it for a while. So they've heard John, and they've accepted what he said for a time. Because in chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, you can read about them sending people to John and saying, who are you? And John says, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm a herald of the Messiah. I'm someone that's saying he's coming soon. And so that is why the Jewish leaders are rejoicing in this news. Because if John was the herald, then the Messiah was not far away. And we see um, that actually the stuff that Jesus is saying he can do and some of the, the um, actions that he, he did as well do seem to be suggestive that he is someone who can give life to people. And yet we hear from the way that Jesus is interacting with these leaders in this passage uh, that even though John the Baptist has said, I'm the herald of the Messiah, and then explicitly points to Jesus as that person, the Jewish leaders have for some reason stopped believing what John said. And so I guess we have to ask, well, what happened? Was there some other evidence that came up that suggested, no, it's not, it's not him? And of course, I can't say exactly what they were thinking. Nobody can. But we have ideas about what their expectations of the Messiah would be. And so in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, there's a passage which speaks about um, God's, God's representative that would come. And the language that it uses speaks about somebody who would come with power and would come healing people and would come to save Israel and um, to heal the lame and the deaf and end sorrow and bring justice and bring holiness. So there was all of this kind of really rich language around what this Messiah was going to do, and it was going to bring in a time of everlasting joy and abundance and flourishing. So the fact then that we see Jesus coming and he associates with religiously unclean people, so not holy people, and he was actually kind of a poor nobody who wasn't particularly educated and he didn't have any major political ambitions and he spoke to people about having to be prepared to suffer meant that he probably didn't really fit their expectations about the Messiah. And despite all of that, Jesus still says as his second proof to his claims that they should be looking at his actions to find out who he is. And we know that actions are a powerful proof, aren't they? If I did the splits on the floor here, it would be hard for you to say that I can't do it. Like, 
you would have seen it and you would have to have a very good reason for saying that that hadn't just happened. And so um, we're pretty quick to believe our eyes and that's why, you know, magical illusions work, right? And so then we can ask ourselves the question, well, do Jesus' actions support um, his claims? Do they actually suggest that maybe he is the Messiah and the life giver? So it's helpful to remember or to to be told uh, that this conversation in John 5 is taking place just after Jesus has healed a man who was lame for 38 years. So not only does that sound like Isaiah 35, which says the lame will leap like a deer, so the people that haven't been able to walk will all of a sudden be able to get up and jump around. But we, in our language, sometimes talk about or hear the idea of having a new lease on life. And often it comes after somebody's overcome struggle or overcome an illness. Um, And we recognise that in a culture where um, our life is dependent on our ability to work, which is still the case for us a lot of the time, but perhaps slightly less than it was in a subsistence sort of culture, um, to have someone who was lame be healed is actually definitely a giving of new life to someone. It's not a raising from the dead, but it is this opportunity all of a sudden for them to access things that they haven't been able to access, to be socially acceptable, to have the freedom to get up and do things, autonomy. You know, these, this is definitely new life that is given. And so I think for us, there is still... Um, ways that we can think about Jesus giving us new life, even if it isn't a physical healing, our emotional or spiritual or relational life can be changed wildly, can, could be restored. All of us have things that we would like to see improved. And so this is sort of the space in which we might be able to get new life. But we also see in John's gospel a bit later that Jesus actually does physically raise someone from the dead. So Lazarus, his friend, dies and he goes and he's seen by a whole lot of different Jews who have come to grieve for Lazarus. He's seen to go to the grave and to actually physically raise him from the dead. So when Jesus says, look at my actions and you'll see the proof of who I am, there are some pretty convincing actions that he's doing to suggest maybe he is this Messiah figure. And so it is a little bit strange that the Jewish leaders are still unconvinced by him. And so I want to give you an illustration to try and maybe help us think about why that might be. So obviously most of us have been affected by cancer in some way. We see the devastating effects that it has either in our own personal life, our family life, in our community. Cancer is very prevalent. And because we know how bad it is, how much of a negative impact it has, most of us on some level would probably want a cure for it, would hope for a cure. And yet if you were to start having a conversation amongst you about what that might be, you'd probably actually get different ideas about how that cure would work. So if a cure for cancer meant that a person still had to have chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, still lost their hair, still had nausea and pain, would that cure fit your expectations? So if it still prevented death but entailed suffering for a time, would you accept it as the cure for cancer? Now, I'm not sure if you followed my train of thinking there, but the idea that to have a cure for something um, we would say is to stop death happening, but actually we do have a whole lot of other expectations that are attached to that as well. 
And I think in some ways, perhaps the Jewish leaders are kind of reacting to Jesus' claims in a similar way. Jesus is making a claim to be someone, and they've got all these ideas about what that means, and he doesn't quite fit that picture that they have in their mind. And yet, if you look at Jesus' actions, they do seem, at least in some ways, pretty convincing proofs that he is a powerful person who is able to give life to people. And so I think there is a bit of a challenge for us here in terms of thinking about what expectations we carry about who God is and how God chooses to work, um, and also what we think life might look like when we're following Jesus. Are our expectations grounded in what God has actually chosen to reveal about himself and has chosen to record in the Bible, or are they based on what we think is good or what we want? If God doesn't answer a prayer in the way that we expect him to, does that mean that we stop trusting that he is good or loving or wise? Or do we still accept that he is God, but that perhaps his plan looks different to what we think it should be? So this is something that I think it's good for us to think about. It's the new year, new resolutions, and in your spiritual life, in your faith, it is good to think about what hopes you have, how you hope God will be working in your life, what expectations you have, and what they're based on. Are they based on disappointment, on what God has said he will do? But there is also an encouragement to us here in this proof of actions And so if you were here last week, then you might have heard Beck encouraging us to marinate in the Gospels in order to get to know Jesus. And that's the same encouragement we have again this week. Jesus says, look at my actions as proof of who I am. If you stop and read the Gospels and look at what Jesus said and did, is he powerful? Is he good? Do his actions look good? Uh, Is he someone that is worth following, worth mimicking? Because if Jesus is a good role model, then we can think about how in our day-to-day life we are mimicking Jesus. And the word mimic has sort of a kind of negative connotation, I think, because I I say mimic and in some ways I just think about an annoying child like repeating back at you when you're trying to tell them something really important. The good thing is Jesus is fine with that. So if we genuinely were just to mimic Jesus he wouldn't care. He'd love it because that is our goal as Christians, as followers of Christ. He wants us to follow him and not just in some kind of abstract theoretical way, but actually to look at him, to look at the actions that he did, the life he lived, the way he spoke and loved people, and he wants us to do what he did. So that is an encouragement to us to look at the Gospels, to marinate in them, and uh, to start doing, if we're not already, doing what Jesus does. But not only should we marinate in the Gospels, because the third proof that Jesus offers us is the Scriptures, and by that he is saying the Old Testament, because obviously the New Testament wasn't written at that point. And so he's saying, look at the Old Testament as proof of my claims to say that I am who I say I am. And so when you sit down and read the Old Testament, do you read about Jesus? Because according to this passage, the answer is yes. Um, And Jesus says to the Jewish leaders uh, that the scriptures, so the Old Testament, that they're so diligently studying, testifies about him. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? If the Jewish leaders had understood what Moses had said properly, 
then when Jesus had come, they would recognize him as the Messiah. But for all their study, they have failed to understand God's plan and promises. And so uh, we're told in, in 2 Corinthians that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. Therefore, the Old Testament all points to Jesus in some way. Saying that always feels a little bit kind of um, vague, I think. Uh, Like, how does that actually work? Uh, It doesn't mean that we sort of just start subbing Jesus' name into every other name in the Old Testament and sort of trying to make that fit. And it doesn't mean that every action or event that we see is something that Jesus would do. But it just means that in each book of the Old Testament, it is somehow foreshadowing or foretelling or mirroring or preparing people um, for Jesus. It highlights something about Jesus' future actions and character. And this week, a friend happened to post on Facebook a clip by a preacher called J.D. Greer. And in it, he's going through each book of the Old Testament um, and explaining how Jesus can be seen in that book. And it's definitely worth having a, a listen to or watch. So if you're interested, I can show you later. But I just thought I'd give you some of the examples to help try and sort of recognize what it means when we say that we see Jesus in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Genesis, we see Jesus, who is called the Word of God. Um, We see God speaking to create the heavens and the earth. So God speaks word and life happens. And that kind of um, mirrors Jesus in some ways. And then in Exodus, we see, again, Jesus' death is kind of mirrored in the Passover happening and in the blood that is painted on the doorpost, which then protects the Israelites um, and uh, leaves them standing so that they're then able to be freed from slavery and oppression. And that also sort of reflects what Jesus does in his death um, when he comes and frees us. Uh, In Leviticus, we see the temple, which kind of preempts the fact that Jesus is now the place where we meet and worship God by his spirit. In Numbers, Jesus is ever present in the pillars of fire and cloud which are guiding the people through the Israelites through the wilderness and so again we now have the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ who guides us um, through our life and in Deuteronomy it tells us about this coming prophet who will be greater than Moses and as we've read in John 5 today Jesus says that's me I am that person and you can go um, all the way through the Old Testament and there will be themes or ideas or things that all point to what Jesus comes and does fully in himself And so for that reason, the Old Testament is a proof to Jesus' claims. And so it is good for us to be reading the Old Testament in order to get to know Jesus as well. And so not just about marinating in the Gospels, but we should sort of be spending time in the Old Testament in order to get to know Jesus and how God has chosen to work through him in the world. But it's also good for us to recognise the warning that we see in John 5, um, We can study the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, diligently, and yet, if we do not come to Jesus, if we do not have a relationship with Jesus, then we still do not have life. So it doesn't matter how academic I am, if I do not engage with Jesus and have a relationship with him, I don't receive the life that he offers. And this means that we do have to perhaps let go of some of the expectations that we have and humble ourselves 
Uh, it might mean that we have to be prepared to accept that we don't know better than God, that we don't love people better than God loves people, or that our sense of justice isn't stronger than God's sense of justice. We need to be careful that we're not proud like the Jewish leaders were, um, who were unwilling to accept the way that Jesus showed love and grace and mercy um, and were holding so tightly to their legalistic kind of expectations and their political and spiritual expectations. We need to be careful that, like the Jewish leaders did, we don't just try to tick particular religious boxes or to try and receive honour or glory from people around us in the world rather than prioritising what God says is honourable or good. Because the consequence um, that is mentioned was that those who failed to accept Jesus' claim missed out on salvation. They missed out on experiencing the joy that comes when the Messiah, when Jesus, gives new life and then when he will give eternal life to us. And they missed out on receiving honour before God. And instead, it was their own expectations that end up accusing them. So Jesus says, I will not accuse you because your hope in Moses is already going to do that. Um, I think sometimes the food fads that pop up present a bit of a warning, like the uh, coconut oil craze that's kind of, you know, happening or happened. I don't know if it's passed yet, but, um, but the fact that we put all our hope that this thing is going to be the thing that gives us health and long life, you kind of just wonder, wouldn't it be kind of awful and a bit ironic if that was the thing that actually gave us diseases and heart attacks and diabetes, which, you know, it's fat like it could do that right so this hope that we put into this thing that is going to like save us but actually it's the thing that's condemning us in the end and that's kind of what the the Jewish leaders have done they've put all their hope in, in Moses and in the law of Moses and failed to recognize that actually that's pointing to Jesus and to grace and so we are warned in some ways not to be like the Jewish leaders we are to study the Bible because it's this amazing revelation that God has given us about who he is and how he works in the world, and that points to Jesus. And it's an encouragement. We can ask our questions. We can consider the proofs. And I, I think it's really important in having conversations with people that aren't Christian. If you don't know about God, it's not this thing that we have that is just a blind faith with no substance to it. It's something that's substantial and worth looking into. Um, so consider the proof that's before us. But also we need to check our expectations and to make sure that what we think God is actually matches what God says God is rather than just what we hope God is. So do our expectations match reality? Um, and I think the most important thing that we are reminded of in this passage particularly is that Jesus is saying, you must come to me for life. So it's not about knowledge. It's not about doing the right things. It's about recognizing that it's through Jesus that we have life and we have life in the moment and we have life eternally. So I think all of us, I'm prepared to say all of you need new life. I need new life. There are lots of things in my life that definitely need renewing. And so um, we are invited in this to come to Jesus again. Um, and so that is not just about what we know, but it's about knowing him personally by the Spirit. Because when Jesus is in our life, we are being renewed every day. We also have honour before God. 
and we have the assurance of eternal life, which is a true cause for joy. It's not always just feeling happy, but it's a deep joy knowing that we are secure. And so I'm going to leave you hanging about which of my claims was the lie. If it's going to stop you from sleeping at night, you're welcome to ask me later. Uh, But instead, I want to finish by praying for us. So please pray with me. Lord Jesus, Lord of life, you are powerful, compassionate, and so patient with us. Thank you for the testimony of so many witnesses across history who testify to your goodness, your love, and your power to save us. Thank you that you allow us to ask questions and to seek answers. Help us to be humble and to recognise where our expectations are driven by pride rather than by fact. Comfort us in our disappointments. Give us strength when we are required to suffer and renew our joy as we trust your promise that in your timing we will have full and eternal life with you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.